Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 127 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And it's National Poetry Month. Woohoo! Yay! We are going to celebrate large today, everybody. Be yes, ready. We are. Yeah, put your poetry pants on. That's right. Get them on. Get them snugged in because we're going, we're going for it. <laughs> I'm going to start right away reading something from the anthology that we're doing as a read along, which we'll talk about shortly. And this poem is by Nyla Northson. She's of the Shoshone and Anishinaabe people. The poem is titled 99 Things to Do Before You Die. Cosmo Mag came out with a list of 99 things to do before you die. I had done 47 of them, or at least my version of them, like make love on the forest floor, spend a day in bed reading a good book, sleep under the stars, learn not to say yes when you mean no. But the other things were things only rich people could do, and we certainly know you don't have to be rich before you die. Things like dive off a yacht in the Aegean, buy a round-the-world air ticket, go to Monaco for the Grand Prix, go to Rio during Carnival, Sure would love to, but no mazaska. Money, honey. So what's a poor Indian to do? Come up with a list that's more culturally relevant. So my list includes go 49ing at Crow Fair. Learn of 20 ways to prepare commodity canned pork. Fall in love with a white person. Fall in love with an Indian. Eat tanega with a Sioux. Learn to make good fry bread. Be an extra in an Indian movie. Learn to speak your language. Give your grandma a rose and a bundle of sweet grass. Watch Muwak deer dance. Attend a Hopi Kachina dance. Owl dance with a Yakima. Curl up in bed with a good Indian novel. Better yet, curl up in bed with a good Indian novelist. Ride bareback and leap over a small creek. Make love in a teepee. Count coup on an enemy. Bathe, not swim in a lake or river. Wash your hair too and don't forget your pits. Stop drinking alcohol. Tell skinwalker stories by campfire. Almost die, then appreciate your life. Help somebody who has it worse than you. Donate canned goods to a local food bank. Sponsor a child for Christmas. Bet on a stick game. Participate in a protest. Learn a song to sing in a sweat recycle. Grow a garden. Say something nice every day to your mate. Say something nice every day to your children. Chop wood for your grandpa. So there. A more attainable list. At this rate, I'm ready to die any time. Not much left undone. Though Cosmos, have an affair in Paris while discoing in red leather and sipping champagne, could find a place on my list. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I love that poem. Her next poem is called Cooking Class. And if we had more time, I would read that one to you as well. <laughs> so Emily, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. This is the poetry anthology edited by Joy Harjo that I just read from. It's also the collection that we're doing a joint read-along with, with Jenny from Reading Envy. Super excited about that. We're going to record with Jenny on May 12th, and she has a great, she's kind of split the anthology up in sections by week throughout April, which is available on her Goodreads page, which we'll note in the show notes. Yeah, definitely check that out. She's got the conversation going already and did a nice introduction to her starting to read the anthology. So that is um, definitely on my upcoming reads to, to get into this week. 
Yeah, I had decided I was going to be really methodical about it. But then I'm finding what I'm doing is just picking it up and opening up and reading, you know, Mm -hmm. a little bit every day, which I'm really enjoying. So I highly recommend it. What about you? Well, I I'm currently reading about 500 books is how it feels because I (laughs) I'm just dipping in and out and some things are not catching me all the time, you know, at at the right mood. So I'm going to talk about two that I'm reading today. The first is an audio book. It's The Finest Hours, the true story of the U.S. Coast Guard's most daring sea rescue. It's by Michael Togias, T-O-U-G-I-A-S, and Casey Sherman. The audiobook is narrated by Malcolm Hillgartner. And, you know, talking about Jenny, in a recent episode of Reading Envy, she mentioned having a list of narrators to avoid. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So um, I'm not really enthralled by the performance of this book. It's about this storm that happened in 1952 off the coast of New England. It was a nor'easter in February, I believe. And so it's winter, it's snowing, it's blowing. The waves were like 50 to 70 feet waves. And there was a tanker, a big oil tanker, that split, had a split down the middle. And they called for assistance. So the Coast Guard, you know, it's it was a dicey call, you know, do they send their boats out into this raging sea, this monster of a storm? Do they send planes out? They they did send a plane out. They had the coordinates for the, you know, the assistance call. And as the pilot is flying to those coordinates, he sees a half of a ship floating. But it's a different color. And then he notices there's also a different name. Mm. of the ship so what happened was during the same storm within something like 30 miles apart two tanker ships cracked in half not they didn't hit each other no they 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 split from the pressure of the waves and it was poor steel it was kind of rotten steel and they were also ships built during world war ii and the author explains that they were welded rather than riveted which Riveted ships are sturdier. So it was just a freak accident that both of these tankers were in the same vicinity and they both cracked in half. For those of you who have seen the movie Titanic, you know, similar thing uh, with a a huge ship like that splitting in half, which is just mind-boggling to me. And I can't imagine how horrific it would be to just see it, let alone be on a ship that that happens. So they realized then, because that that other ship that the pilot spotted, they didn't have any idea about that ship being in distress because of the way their ship split. It killed their communication systems before they could do anything. So I have about two hours left in this book, and it's really kept me, my interest going. And some of the descriptions of the the panic of the men and the bravery and just the dogged determination to save these men is just a remarkable story. Wow. Horrific too. Yeah, because there's this one scene where they're in a rescue boat. There's 14 men, I believe. And a guy falls from one of the big ships and he was a big man and he cracked like two of the seats. So the guys doing the oars 
couldn't really do their job because they couldn't sit anymore. And so some of the men that they'd rescued panicked and they started standing up and grabbing and they capsized the boat mm-hmm. and all those men drowned, save one. Wow. Yeah, it makes you not want to go to sea, but want to go to sea at the same time. <laughs> and I'm reading this because for my archive class, I'm doing a field experience at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy's Library Special Collections. So I'm interested in learning more about the Coast Guard and started scanning what audiobooks were available. Again, that's The Finest Hours, The True Story of the U.S. Coast Guard's Most Daring Sea Rescue by Michael Tugius. Sounds really riveting, really. So cool. I'm reading and listening to a book called Bird in Hand by Christina Baker Klein. We must be suffering the same thing, Chris, because I'm just having a really hard time finding a book that works for me. And um, Christina Baker Klein is the author of Orphan Train. Some people might recognize that book was really popular. And her most recent was Exiles, which we talked about this year at some point. I was thinking I would get to that one. And then I saw something saying that this book was on sale. The e-version of it was on sale. So I thought, I'll try it. I'll get both the audio and the um, e-book. And it's, it's caught my attention. She's a great writer. Ironically, I'm reading a story about things that I'd never like to read about, which is infidelity in a marriage. Those are kind of two things I tend to try to shy away from. But for some reason, this one is sticking with me. And it's even worse than that. It's one of those stories where uh, there's a set of friends and the women, they're heterosexual couples and the women are best friends. And one of the women starts to cheat with the other woman's husband. Like that's the darkest of the dark, I think. Yeah. And the lying and all that. But the reason I think I'm sticking with it is because the opening sentences of the book are that one of the women, the the woman who's being cheated upon, I guess, is driving down the road and she is lost and she gets into a car accident that is not her fault, but a young three-year-old boy is killed. Mm-hmm. So that's the opening sentences of the book. So it really gets your attention and you kind of want to see where the story's going and then about 50% in, you realize that, you know, you start getting into the understanding more about these particular couples, and it's kind of gross. But I'm 50% in, and I'm still going. So there you have it. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's called Bird in Hand by Christina Baker Klein. And that came out in 2009. So it's been around for a while. Well, the next book I'm going to talk about is a poetry book that I mentioned last episode by Lucille Clifton. Blessing the Boats, New and Selected Poems, 1988 to 2000. And like you mentioned, I've just been kind of picking it up and reading around here and there. And I wanted to share one of the poems. It's called Poem to My Uterus. You, uterus, you have been patient as a sock while I have slippered into you, my dead and living children. Now they want to cut you out, stocking I will not need where I am going. Where am I going? Old girl, without you, uterus, my bloody print, my estrogen kitchen, my black bag of desire, where can I go barefoot without you? Where can you go without me? Oh, wow. If somebody's had a hysterectomy, I appreciated that poem. Yeah, definitely. Me too. So you know how on the last episode, you were wondering how you came about to get that book, you know, you went to pick it up at the library and you're like, hmm, 
I wonder if it was that event we both attended with Roxane Gay. Who else was there? Was it Tracy Smith, the poet? Oh, yeah, right. Remember about Audre Lorde? Yeah, maybe it was. That's a good yeah. connection. Yeah. I was wondering if one of them mentioned it, because mm-hmm. it seems like that could be. Yeah. yeah. Some of the poems I'm, are not connecting with me and others are. So I'm I'm still picking it up a little bit here yeah, and there. Yeah, that's usually how those collections go for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm also um, reading a book that's going to be one of the ones that sticks around with me most of the year. This is the year of the bean for me. I'm going to try to get better at not just cooking with beans, but actually soaking beans overnight. In other words, planning ahead, which isn't my <laughs> forte. <laughs> I'm kind of one of those open the refrigerator and see what you can make out of it. So the thing I'm finding is that I... I'm not great at the soaking thing. So I'm being gentle with myself and using canned beans when that's the case. But this cookbook is called Bean by Bean, a cookbook. And the author's name is Crescent Dragon Wagon. I love that. Which is probably the best author name ever. Yes. And it's a really great resource of just, you know, she just has these um, graphs of all the different kinds of beans. And then she mentions really good places to purchase beans. And her recipes do have canned beans. And some of them are soaked and lots of other um, kinds of recipes in between. So I highly recommend it if you're looking for some inspiration on cooking beans. That's awesome. I used to be a real purist when I would make chili that and I always use black beans. I love black beans that I had to soak them and mm-hmm. do it the old fashioned way. <laughs> I've yeah. since lightened up on that, but <laughs> <laughs> I know I've never been good at it. Uh, like I said, because it's the planning ahead part, but I'm working on it. We, I was talking um, through Facebook with one of our buddies, Chris up in Vermont, and she said she just has a routine where just on Saturday morning, she just puts beans in to soak every week. And I thought, that's that's kind of smart to just schedule it, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, because they are such a great staple. They're so Mm -hmm. filling and good for you, fiber and all that good stuff. That's right. Yeah. Bring it on. Good advice. (laughs) Healthy 2021. Yes. So what did you just read? Well, I can start off with a quick DNF. Again, it's a a Coast Guard book, and it's not the book that I had the issue with. It was the narrator. The title is So Others May Live, Coast Guard Rescue Swimmers, Saving Lives, Defying Death by Martha Lagardia Cotite. And it's a really great story so far. It starts off with another huge storm and the chaos and confusion that happens when you're in a storm and you get blown around so much that you don't really know your bearings and so you can give the wrong coordinates to the people who are trying to rescue you. I started listening to this book. It's narrated by Jim Cooper. And what finally was the last straw was like his accent. He tries, there's one character in the book who's a British person who has an accent presumably in real life I just couldn't take his attempt at doing this accent. It was at first like I laughed and then it just annoyed me. So I stopped listening. (laughs) I'm going to find paper copy of the book to actually read. And, you know, other people may not be bothered by that. It's one of those quirky things. Right. So um, if it sounds like a a good book you want to check out, I'm still going to check out the actual book. And there was a movie that was made probably 10 years ago, maybe it was with Kevin Costner and Ashton Kushner. 
where yeah. they yeah did you see that one it's yeah. i don't remember the title of it but they're yeah. coast guard swimmers rescue swimmers and kevin costner is the older slightly grizzled man who is kind of at the end of his peak for that kind of work and Ashton Kushner is the the new kid on the block and I thought that was a really good movie and uh, so that's what attracted me to this book was the rescue swimmers aspect Mm -hmm. I loved that movie yeah yeah it makes me want to watch it again yeah I was just just, gonna say that yeah (laughs) (laughs) well I'm gonna go with my DNF as well I have a very disappointing DNF And I'm going to caveat by saying I already mentioned I'm having a hard time getting into some books, but this is one I was so looking forward to and have talked about it already on the podcast, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Yeah. I got halfway through. It's tedious. I just can't do it. I mean, there are pages of dialogue, which is tedious to read, I think. And the story's just not gripping me. Mm. So I've just decided I'm going to put it down. I've got too many others piling up. Yeah. So well, that was a disappointment happens. to me. Yeah. So did you finish any? I did. I actually finished two. I read These Women by Ivy Pachoda. This was for Colleen's birthday book group that she got together. It was a lot of fun to meet new people and to see some familiar faces. So These Women... I, I listened to the audio primarily. I also had a hard copy that I checked out of the library. It's narrated by Bonnie Turpin and Frankie Curzo. I really loved the audiobook. It's a serial killer novel in a way. That could be already a bit of um what do you call it? I can't even think of my words today. Like a trigger for people or a Well, um... a trigger, but um also a <laughs> Spoiler. That's the word. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> it's not even that early in the morning, people. <laughs> so, but it's it follows these five women primarily. One of them is her narrative is spaced throughout the book. She both starts and ends the book, and then her narrative is throughout. She's a person who was attacked and survived. The other four women did not. And They are all, four of them are sex workers of some kind, and the fifth was a young girl who was not. So it brings up a lot of issues of women's position in society, how women are valued or not. There's also a woman detective who you see her struggle as being a woman within the department as a short woman, too. Like, she's something like you know not even five foot maybe and she's you know slight and so people often mistake her for a kid so you see so much of the struggle that women have in society in general and then with each other and then the hierarchy of how women are valued you know what type of sex worker are they were they dancers who did a little extra in a back room or were they street walkers and you have the mothers of some of these women So it's really, it's intergenerational, it's friendship, it is, there are some marriages involved, heterosexual marriages. It was such a gripping story and such a different story. I could see why it's up for an Edgar Award for Best Novel, because it was very different. And it's such a grim subject matter. You know, I usually don't read very many serial killer novels because they are just so grim, for lack of a better word. But this book, and especially the narration, was very different. And 
from talking in the group with Colleen's group, you know, a couple of people mentioned just how bleak it was. And I do have to say that the audiobook brought a little bit of humor out here and there, more like sarcastic humor or, you know, that dark humor. Um, but overall, I really enjoyed it. I think it was a great pick and a good book for discussion. Surprise, you know, again, right. serial killer novels, <laughs> usually not that great for discussing. Um, but again, that was These Women by Ivy Pachoda. Oh, I'm so glad you got to do that. I was hopeful, but I just, I couldn't get to it, I'm afraid. And shout out to Colleen for choosing such a, you know, thought provoking book. It's Absolutely. not always easy to do that. But um, and happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday, <laughs> Colleen. Great way to celebrate. Right, right. I mean, it really is. It's a great idea, especially since we can't be together in person these days. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to talk about two different poetry collections. The first one um, is beautiful and full of monsters. And I did read this from start to finish. It has 58 poems in it, I think. The author is Courtney LeBlanc. It was published in 2020 by Vegetarian Alcoholic Press. And I thought I would just read one of the poems just to give you a sense of her style. Um, this is a poem that has an epigraph in it, and the poem is titled Forest Fire. And then this first portion is an epigraph, which means it's, you know, in italics, and it's not something she wrote. In order to promote healthy growth, the National Park Service periodically conducts controlled burns in redwood forests. I have a redwood growing out of my chest, a towering mass of bark and leaves, older than a millennia. It reaches towards sunlight, aches for water, and your touch. I am too wild, too rugged, wilderness, too much. When you light a match, I lean toward the hiss and pop. It climbs the dry bark, racing to the top, leaves and hair exploding in flame, the colors lighting up the forest inside me. You stand watching me burn. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. That gives you some insight into Courtney. This book is very intense. It's really good. She's a powerful writer, and she's writing about really fraught subjects. I mean, abuse, emotional abuse, um, partner abuse, and the impact it has on your being, you know, both your physical being and your emotional being. I really enjoyed it. And it is not for the faint of heart. And it's separated into three sections. The first is monsters, which is what the, where this poem comes from. And then the second section is called full. And the third section is called beautiful. So she really does make you progress through and see some beauty towards the end, which I appreciated. And Courtney has just started her own press that's called Riot in Your Throat that publishes fierce feminist poetry. And her first collection that she's publishing is um, coming out on May 1st. And it's entitled Green. And the author is Melissa Fight Johnson. And green in the title, green kind of refers to being young and naive, you know, mm -hmm. and how you face life that way to start, but then how things change. The subject matter she's talking about a lot in this book is her father. And the beginning where, she, you know, you think of her as being more green as a, as a writer and a person, 
her father is ill and she's young and she just doesn't really have the patience or understanding or tolerance. And then towards the end of the book, you see her maturing as an adult and having, um, you know, experiencing her father's death. And so the book is filled with grief as well. Mm -hmm. And then understanding a little bit what it must have been like for him, you know, looking through a lens of an older person. So I'm going to read you the first, the first, um, actually, I think this might be the second poem in the collection. It's called The Immediacy. Once my father wanted yogurt, but couldn't remember the word. Once he tried to carry his own cereal, brace the bowl's lip against his cane handle, and my mother came home to flakes crusted to the kitchen floor. When he mouthed Eldon again and again, I guessed my brother had a new girlfriend, Ellen, but it was the name of his dead uncle. So what? I asked, then left the room. The day my father died, I smelled the cologne-tinged rubber handle of his cane, held it tight in my hand, pretended it was his hand. Oh. Oh. Yeah. That it's really a, hits you. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful collection. I'm going to read a poem then towards the end. Visitation. If I squint hard against the sun, I can materialize a crooked door cut into the sky. For an hour or two, I depart this place and enter the blue-tinged light of an old television. Beside, my father on his couch for Wheel of Fortune. We try to guess the phrases first. During commercials, I show him photos of my husband, laugh when he scrunches his face in mock disapproval. I touch his Adam's apple, new, plugging the hole cancer made, and hear his gravelly voice for the first time. Eventually, I smooth my skirt, kiss his cheek, slide open the screen door, barefoot in the green. (laughs) So again, that was um, the collection Green by Melissa Fite Johnson, and that comes out on May 1st via the press Riot in Your Throat. And both those small presses, I think it helps them a lot if you buy directly from them. So I will put um, links to that in the show notes. Of course, if you just buy the collection anywhere, it helps. <laughs> but <Yes>. I think <laughs> with small presses, it's particularly helpful if you buy directly from them. Thank you for sharing those. Sure. Oh. Yeah. Well, the other book I read was actually another audio book, although I didn't know it at the time. I found it on Hoopla. It was, uh, I saw it recommended on Twitter. It's Around America to Win the Vote, Two Suffragists, a Kitten, and 10,000 Miles. It's by Mara Rocklife. And so I found it in Hoopla and I just clicked, you know, borrow or whatever the word is. And it, I realized it was an audiobook. So this is a picture book written for the uh, kindergarten to second grade crowd. I had listened to one audiobook in the past, Ferdinand. You know, The Bull, I love that. It's one of my favorite kids' books. Um, So I had listened to that because I bought a a set that had the book and then like the cassette. (laughs) Tells you how long ago that was. (laughs) Um, So uh, this was my first digital kids' audio picture book. And it tells the story of Nell Richardson and Alice Burke, who in 1916 did an Around America road trip to help spread the word on, you know, votes for women. You know, and this is at a time when there were barely really 
passable roads for an automobile. There really weren't gas stations and there really weren't maps at that time. So what they did was pretty a pretty great feat and they would drive all day and then stop and give speeches at night, which I, you know, wow. I can't imagine yeah. how exhausting that was, but exhilarating <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. The narrator was very enunciated, very clear. So you can picture a kid reading along and listening at the same time. Yeah. So I enjoyed that. The narrator, she narrated the book. And then I don't know if this is an afterword by the author in the book. There's some historical background on the women's rights movement and these two suffragists and road tripping in America in 1916. And she also mentions that there is an adult version. One of her friends is working on an adult version of this road trip. So I'm going to have to track that down, too. Yeah, that's great. Now, am I, I, you know, I'm not the history buff here, but isn't it also unusual that two women would be driving like that? Yeah, it was really controversial for women to drive. Yeah. Period. Anywhere, you know, because women are, of course, feeble minded and have no physical coordination or anything. Right. Incapable in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear our <laughs> eyes roll? Um <laughs> So, it, yeah, that was, you know, a mark of de- definitely being, a, you know, a new woman, a free woman uh, to, to drive. Um, right. Yeah. So I think, though, like smoking, you know, more women did it than is probably known or, you know, earlier accounts would reveal. Right. Um, right. I do look forward to learning more about their adventure. Again, that was around America to win the vote to suffragists, a kitten and 10,000 miles by Mara Rock Life. And I'll definitely, the next time in, I'm at the library or a bookstore, I'm going to track down the hard copy because I'd love to see the illustrations. The cover is really cute and vibrant. And it'd be just neat to see the scenes actually depicted. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, we I got to see the cover last week because we did some social media with you holding it. Yeah. yeah. I also finished a book called Somebody's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford. This book comes out on June 1st. It's a memoir. It's Ashley's kind of um, recounting her years growing up with her single mom in Indiana. She's a Midwesterner like us. And at that time, and for 25 years, her father was incarcerated. And her mom is kind of a stressed out single mom. Ashley is the oldest of three children. She and her brother are the father who's in prison. And then um, when Ashley is a kind of a early, t- I want to say preteen, her mother is in a relationship with a man. She doesn't live with him, but he's pretty present in their lives. And she has a third child, so Ash- Ashley's third sibling. And she really recounts in this memoir her just her experience of you know, it's a coming of age, really, in her experience growing up in Indiana, um, her family, what it was like for her to have her father be in prison, her siblings, and um, she was sexually assaulted by her first boyfriend. And when I wrote that note in my notebook, I was like, that's a funny word, isn't it? Boyfriend to use when there's someone that's abused you. He was her boyfriend at the time, mm-hmm. didn't turn out to be very much of a friend. And she never told anybody about it. And that's something that she comes to terms with in the memoir as well. I really enjoyed reading it. She's she's a great writer. She's 
very well known already for um, she's a podcaster and a writer. Uh, this is her first memoir. And she, there's something about her writing that when you get to an end, the end of the chapter, you know, she always ends it in a way that you're like, okay, I'm turning to the next chapter. You know, I really wanted to keep reading. But there was a piece of the memoir missing for me, which was, I wanted to know more about how she felt about her dad being in prison. Because that is a, you know, she thinks about her dad a lot, although she, there's huge gaps in years between when she goes to see him. And I follow her on social media, and he is out of prison now, so she can have contact with him as much as she wants. But I would have liked a little bit more reflection on, you know, what it was like to be a kid with a dad in jail, and and also how she reconciled, he was in jail for raping two women, and she really doesn't address that. And I get that children aren't to be held accountable for their parents' actions. I'm not suggesting that. But I just wish she would have talked more about what it was like and what it ha has been like to be, you know, someone who grew up not having access to her father and how she reconciled why, why she didn't, you know. Right. And that he's convicted rapist. Right. I mean, how do you deal with that knowing your father yeah and maybe she didn't because the truth is you don't and you know I know that in a lot of cases kids are very forgiving of their parents because they just want their parent to be their parent sure you know yeah so and I'm not suggesting she shouldn't forgive him I'm just saying that I would have liked to have understood how she managed all that in her mind right mm -hmm. and when did she find out why he was incarcerated because I I would imagine that's not information you tell a young child. Right. And it did just kind of come out one day. And it was when she was, she wasn't young, but she wasn't old either, you know. And in classic family secrets, right? We talked about this with Luann Rice. You know, there's a lot of secrets in families. And it w wasn't like it was really explained. And so maybe that's also why she didn't deal with it in the memoir, because maybe she hasn't talked to her father about it. You know, and maybe she doesn't, maybe she doesn't want to know, you know, I mean, people are entitled to whatever, you know, Yeah. but just, it's just an observation that I had reading it, that it was kind of a recounting of facts of her life, you know, and mm -hmm. how she, you know, went to college and, you know, like her growing up years, which I enjoyed reading, but I would have liked a little bit more insight. Yeah. Bring me along on your feelings a little bit more mm -hmm. with, all, with that particular aspect. Again, it's called Somebody's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford, and that comes out on June 1st. And thank you to Flatiron for giving me an early copy because I was anxious to get my hands on this one. All right, Biblio Adventures. We had an in real life joint jaunt, and it was so exciting. It was. <laughs> It was a party with the two of us getting together. <laughs> <laughs> we went to Old Saybrook, Connecticut, which is down the road from us, about 20 minutes or so. We also took a video. We made a video that's on our YouTube channel. We'll link to that if you want to check it out. We went to see Ann Petrie's childhood home, which was also the family business, uh, the James Pharmacy in Old Saybrook, right on Main Street. Yeah, super cool building. It had an addition put on it at some point where he made a fountain shop, like yeah. a good old fashioned fountain shop. Her dad. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, where her dad did. And now in its last incarnation, which sadly closed during the pandemic, it was a gelateria. 
We peeked in the windows and you can see where they had the different options for choosing gelato flavors. I could taste it as I looked <laughs> through the window. Yeah, so the whole building was a bed and breakfast um, as well and with that gelato. But it did close during the pandemic and the building is now for rent. Ann Petrie grew up there until she was about 12. And then the, the family bought a, a home that wasn't attached to the business um, so that was just really fun to do a little more reading about Anne Petrie. We talked about some of her novels. We peeked in the windows a lot and posted some of those photos. And then we took a walk down the street to the old Saybrook Public Library, the Acton Public Library. Yeah, and outside they have this really cool sculpture. I called it a cricket. Then Jim looked at it and he said, that's not a cricket, Emily. I was embarrassed. Oh, you know what? There's debate about what kind of bug it is. Some people think it's a dragonfly. Some people think it's some other kind of fly. I don't remember. A fly that doesn't have wings to the sides, but more to the back of its body. He told you know? me he thought it was a praying mantis. Right. Apparent. That's another thing that people right. have, <laughs> have given. I don't think there's an official word on what kind of bug it is. Some people just call it the bug or the insect. It is so. reading a book, and the book is called Lord of the Flies, which yes. does give you a clue that maybe it's a fly. <laughs> it's so cool. It's this steel sculpture, and definitely check out the video. Maybe we'll use a picture of that as the cover of this episode. We'll oh, that's see. a great idea. Yeah. 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 So we will, like like Chris said, we'll put a link in the show notes specifically to that video so you can watch it. Newsletter subscribers got a, a little sneak peek last week with that video. But it was really fun. It was just so fun to be out together outside doing our, you know, nerdy favorite thing, which was talking about authors and libraries. And, and then we had a little bit of a, a dream fantasy about renting that building and doing something cougarish in it. We didn't know what, but. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Book cougarish. Book cougarish. Come on, people. <laughs> You know what? That would be so cool. It could be like book cougars headquarters. Yeah. Hmm. We could do author events. We could just have, you know, we, our listeners could come stay in the bed and breakfast and we could all just be introverts and read in the dining room together. Oh my God. We could have like a sleepover book club. Oh, that'd be so fun. (laughs) All right. If there are any investors out there, let us know. Give us a shout. I also had an in-real-life biblio adventure. I took the gentleman caller to the Savoy Bookshop and Cafe in Westerly, Rhode Island. He had never been there, and I've always wanted to take him. It's such a beautiful bookstore. They're also an affiliate of ours, so if you purchase books through them, you help them and you help the book cougars. Oh, that's great that you guys went up there. Lovely. Yeah, it was really fun. And he bought that book, The Only Good Indians, Mm. the one that you were reading for a little while and he tore through it he loved it did he love it okay yeah. interesting he said it was creepy but he did like it shout out to bookseller anna thank you anna for helping me find the book i was looking for which i was too short to find <laughs> <laughs> and it's called the address book what street addresses reveal about identity race wealth and power by deirdre mask And, you know, they still have the same system going on there where you walk in the door and there's passes you take so that they only have a certain amount of people. The store is really clean. I felt very comfortable being there. They have a lovely cafe. You can't eat in the cafe, but you can buy things to go. Oh, good. Um, 
Yeah, great day trip if anyone ever has the chance. It was renovated in the time that you and I have lived here, and Mm -hmm. it's just a beautiful, beautiful store. Well, we'll have to connect. I think we talked about going to the grand opening because we met Ann Kingman and Michael Kindness there. Right. Um, They were there as, you know, in their official capacity as book reps. Yeah, it was really packed that day. And we had Annie Philbrick on. There's a great video we have of Annie at the beginning of the pandemic kind of talking about what was happening with both the bookstores. We'll link to that also in the show notes. It's a really fun video. Yeah, Annie Philbrook's the owner of Bank Square Books and the Savoy. So um, that was a great video. Check that out, too, if you haven't seen a video and an interview on the episode. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we did did both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a... This wasn't, it was a related bookish event. I participated in a Wikipedia edit-a-thon. Oh, how fun. Yeah, so I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Wikipedia is a site that's been created by volunteers, and anyone can become an editor there. And a few years ago, I think it was like 2008 or so, a study came out that showed that there were something like less than 10% of the editors were women on Wikipedia, 90% were men. And since then, they've done, there have been several studies looking into this, and Wikipedia itself is trying to create more, you know, equality with editorship. They also found problems that men will sometimes try to delete pages written by women or written about women, they'll flag them to be deleted. So they have found outright misogyny happening on Wikipedia. Um, Also, out of the 1.5 million biographies on Wikipedia, only 17.6% are about women. Wikipedia has supported some edit-a-thons, and other organizations have been doing edit-a-thons. And the one I participated in was through Simmons University, and a partner university and it was really fun i had edited wikipedia in the past but probably well over 10 years ago i did some of that and then just got out of it but i thought this would be great um people refer to it as like digital activism mm-hmm. to bring gender equality to the internet because the internet is you know radically male and usually western and white there's a lot of different movements going on to to try and correct this and to bring more voices to the internet in sites like Wikipedia, which is, I think, the seventh most popular site in the world. They get billions of hits a month. So it matters. And so the thing is, it's not just that the men are the editors, but also they bring a certain perspective to topics that are covered and to the perspective of how those topics are covered. So if you were interested in becoming a Wikipedia editor, I am certainly no expert, but I can at least point you in some directions and chat with you about doing it. It's something I'd like to do going forward. So the focus of this Wikipedia edit-a-thon was on um, suffragists and looking at pages related to them that were in danger of being deleted or that were flagged for needing more information. So the page I worked on was the Lucy Stone League page and more on her later in this episode. But I really enjoyed it. And I think it's something I'm going to try and make time for a little bit each month, you know, even an hour or two can make a difference. And there are sources that, you know, give suggestions on what can you do if you only have 10 minutes? What can you do if you have a half hour? 
what can you do if you have more than that? So it's pretty simple and complicated at the same time. But it was That's a fun great. event. Yeah. Well, and also a great way to use, I mean, you you write, you know, so it's a great way for you to use some writing and, you know, either tidy up. Are you tidying? You can tidy up pages, but you can also create pages, right? Yes, you can create. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You can create pages. You can update pages. Some pages, they'll give you recommendations, too, on like what you could do. Like they'll lead you to sites that actually need X, Y, or Z. Um, there was one site I did a little bit of work on that w- was not part of the edit-a-thon, but that needed, what did it, I forget exactly the phrase that they use, but the writing needed smoothing out, put it that way, you know, <laughs> yeah. and looking yeah. at it was like, yeah, you could tell somebody just put in a bunch of sentences of facts and it mm-hmm. needed to be constructed more into a narrative that was readable. Yeah. So things like that, or just punctuation. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it, it was fun. It was a day long event on a Monday and I felt like I didn't have time to do it, but I felt like it was important. So I did yeah. it. That's awesome. Good for you. I also know, I mean, you can donate to Wikipedia, which they recommend that people do because we all do use it as a resource and it's, it isn't, you know, it's not a business. I think some people think that it is, it's not, it's all right. volunteer. And I wonder, I mean, I'm just putting this out into the, the world, I don't know the answer to it. But I wonder if you can donate with any specificity, Hmm. you know, yeah, of, you know, I want there to be more representation of, you know, this or that. So Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Wikipedia started, and, you know, people would just go down rabbit holes on it, you know, Mm -hmm. and which people still do, myself included. Um, But I as a teacher, I remember it's like, you can't use that as a source, right? Because it was not respected. Yeah. And and now when the Library of Congress connects to it, because mm-hmm. obviously they've Wikipedia has increased their standards, and it's also monitored. I was going to say policed, but mm-hmm. that might be too harsh of a word. So it's it's just been really interesting to see the internet evolve and mm-hmm. how sites like that have evolved to be right. taken seriously now. Um, it, I mean, I don't think it replaces researched books at all but it is a good starting place for one's research yeah i mean sometimes when we talk about a historical figure on the podcast wikipedia is actually the only place that i can find something to link to Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so i mean there aren't always you know websites for (laughs) you know historical figures sometimes there are yeah but not always and we talk about a lot of women Yes. Who sometimes yes. don't have more resources about them. Right. Yeah. Or even, you know, Wikipedia biography is that one right. statistic showed. <laughs> right. So. Well, do you have any upcoming jaunts planned? I do. I have one new one. It's on April 15th, which is what, like two days after this episode goes live. It's a archive related event laura millar who's the author of a matter of facts the value of evidence in an information age is going to be giving a lecture at oh god ooey pooey <laughs> yeah university of indiana and Purdue oh university. iupui yeah i think they my nephew went there yeah and i think one of the terms is iupui i'm not sure anyway she's delivering her lecture And it's about this issue. And I do have the book because it was last year's professional archivist joint read. 
So I'm going to be reading it this summer. But it's really talking about how important evidence is as a defense against, you know, alternative facts, fake news, outright lies, and how evidence is a foundation for justice and democracy, peace, and, you know, reconciliation. There's a movement within archival studies for reparative work in the archives. Seems like good timing. Yeah, exactly. And like one of the examples was of, um, I believe it was some sketches that were done by a Native American man. And when that was initially cataloged, you know, sometime in the, I think, early to mid 20th century, it was named, the name of it was given to the white man who had hired the Native American man to do the sketches. So the white man, his name was all that was presented. Mm. And now the updated version includes both names. Yeah, so, you know, great. just things like yeah. that so that you yeah. can find people you're looking for and see the historical record that this was drawn by a Native American man and giving him credit for his work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That sounds like a really interesting event. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It is open to the public and we will put in a link in the show notes. I'll definitely report back on that because I think it's such an important issue. And I know a lot of people want to know, like, what can we do to combat all this fake news and propaganda that's out there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait to hear about it. That's great. Yeah. And again, her book is A Matter of Facts, The Value of Evidence in an Information Age by Laura Millar. I have one upcoming jaunt as well. I'm thrilled to announce that I'm going to be moderating a session at the Newburyport Literary Festival the end of April. This is one of my favorite festivals to go to in person up in Newburyport, Mass. Sadly, you know, it's virtual, but also not sadly, because I get to interview someone who's in London. So that's what's happening in the virtual world (laughs) these days. It is going to take place over the course of three days, April 23rd through the 25th. They have a full schedule listed. Everything's free. You can sign up and register all by Zoom. I will post a link in the show notes to the festival, the main site of the festival. I'm going to be moderating an event on April 24th at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the book is the book that I just mentioned um, that I got at Savoy. It's called The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power by Deirdre Mask. It's really interesting because she talks about how street addresses, we think that they were put in place so we could find our way, you know, get directions, but really it's so they were originally created so we could find people, you know, like we could, we, people could find you essentially, you Mm -hmm. know? And so she, I've only just read the introduction. I'm going to start digging into it this weekend, but she didn't intend to write this book. So I'm really curious to see how she came to write it. And she does talk a little bit about the complexity of naming streets and I lived for a period of time in Columbia, Maryland, which was a planned community. And the streets, you know, it was each area of the town was built around a town center, and they had like themes. And so all the street names were based on that. And as I was thinking about this book, I was like, well, of course, they had to give themselves some, you know, basis for how to create all these names, because you don't think of it as a hardship, but it is, it's hard, Mm -hmm. you know to get creative in that way, which is why there are so many main streets and, you know, 
first, second, third avenues, etc. <laughs> so yeah, it's like Lincoln, Nebraska. One way is one, two, three. The other way is ABC. So it oh, could be wow. like 17th and O Street. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good old Midwestern grid. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so anyway, I'm excited. Please sign up for the event and join me. Again, it's at 9 a.m. on April 24th. I'll put a link both into the show notes for the whole festival and then also specifically for the event I'll be moderating. Very cool. Well, I definitely won't miss that because... You know, I love to support my cougar, but I also am really interested in that book. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, I can't wait to start it. I haven't checked into the audio. I really do want to read it mostly because I'm moderating. I want to, you know, mark up the book and all that. But I might get the audio, too, just to see what it's like and report back to folks about that. Excellent. Nice. Well, what about upcoming reads? Well, the address book, of course, and then I'm going to dig into a poetry handbook by Mary Oliver, which is our extra credit for our read along with Jenny since it's National Poetry Month. We also were sent this great collection of 75 essays of flash nonfiction, all by women. It's called Fast Funny Women edited by Gina Barreca. It has a great cover. I posted it on social media. There's lots of comedians in here. Jane Smiley, Marge Piercy, just lots of representation, all different kinds of women from different walks of life. So I'm going to dig into that. And then last, but certainly not least, I have The Age of Light, which is a novel by Whitney Scherer, who's going to be on the podcast coming up. She's been working on a top secret project for us. <laughs> That's the only reveal we're going to give. This is a work of fiction, but it is based on a real person. It's historical fiction. Lee Miller, who was a Vogue model that wanted to get on the other side of the camera and convinced a photographer to take her on as an apprentice. And so it's kind of a, a fictionalized version of her and, and her life. Cool. That sounds good. And I too have a copy of that from the library. Right on. I look forward to digging into that. I'm also going to be reading a new book by Catherine A. Shearbrook. It's called Leaving Coy's Hill. Mm. And this is a fictional account of Lucy Stone, the suffragist that I mentioned earlier. It was just one of those coincidental things, you know, that synchronicity of coming across the same subject or person or something. So Lucy Stone is my synchronicity for this month, apparently. That's Uh, great. So she was one of the important suffragettes of that time period. And the book, I did actually start reading it when it first came. I couldn't help myself. The first chapter is about, it's Lucy being an older woman. It's 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair, and she's giving a speech. And, you know, she looks up and she sees Susan B. Anthony, with whom she had a huge public falling out with. They used to be really good friends, and then they had this falling out. So I do look forward to digging into this, another historical fiction look at a real historical woman. Yeah, that sounds really good. We've both got those. Well, you've got double. You've got a lot going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know what? I don't know if it's like springtime that I just feel like a little bit manic and I want to touch and read all the books. (laughs) Oh, well, that's uh, all four seasons for me. (laughs) 
but, but but I hear you. I've been picking up and putting down a lot more, and I don't know what that's all about. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So many books, so little time. So coming up next, we have an interview with playwright Laura Toma. A.K.A. Chris's wife. Yes. We're very proud of her. Yeah, she had her first play that's been published and it just came out April 1st no joke <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah we're gonna have her on to talk about this play it's called magpie it is available now and we'll put a link in the show notes also just like I was talking about before it's really helpful if you buy directly from the small press that printed it mm-hmm. so we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well that'd be great and if you do read it and enjoy it and want to review it please review it on the publisher's website because that definitely helps theaters discover plays that they can produce at their theater anything from you know high school to community to professional theaters super exciting i'm so yes. proud of her and all the hard work she's done yeah so enjoy our conversation We are so excited to have with us today playwright Laura Toma, whose play Magpie was just published by Next Stage Press. Laura has been our guest before. On episode 19, she was the first to be featured in an author spotlight segment when we talked to her about her workbook, Mastering the Art of Self-Expression. Laura was also on episode 66 for the world premiere of her radio play, Yours in Words. Longtime listeners might remember this episode, which was released on Christmas Day in 2018. It is a radio play, but it's sort of a combination audiobook, play, podcast. It'd be really fun to listen to. We highly recommend you give it a listen if you haven't. Today, we are here to talk with Laura about Magpie. Her first published play is a story of identity, transformation, and sacrifice. With the support of her therapist, Maggie is beginning to claim her own story. Risking her troubled relationship with her mother, she searches to learn more about the father she doesn't know. But can she summon the strength to find the one thing she needs the most, herself? Welcome back to the Book Cougars, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm holding the play. I read it last night. I also got a chance... You had, what would you call it, a read-through of the play via Zoom? Yes. Early mm-hmm. on. I think that was early on in the pandemic. Time is strange these days. It was in July. Okay. Actually, it was July 8th or 9th. So it was familiar to me. I feel like I'd seen it performed, but it was so interesting to read it as a play. And I was thinking, I'm not sure I've ever read a play except maybe Shakespeare back in high school. So yeah, it was really fun. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to have you on and to read a play. Of course. Thank you for reading it. It's exciting to see it in other people's hands. (laughs) When did you start writing Magpie? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, The original, it started in a college class that I was taking when I was still a performer and I was taking college classes on the side in the 90s. So probably in 95-ish. And I was in an English class, an English 101 with Mr. Buckley. And he gave us an assignment to write for an essay to write something that was personal and universal. And I wrote the story of going to my father's grave. And on that paper, he wrote, there were red marks all over the paper, because I am not very good with grammar. And he wrote, are you a professional writer or you should be? Wow. And I was like, what? Like, and I remember going to the front of the class afterwards and going, I don't understand. There are all these red marks. And why does it say this? And he was just 
such a great teacher. So that's where it started. And then it slowly became, I think I did it in the live lit scene when I was doing storytelling, when I was working on speaking. So I did it as a story. And it was just that one scene about going to see my father's grave, usually. And then slowly it just built. Wow. So writers out there, that's the whole thing of getting a prompt, right? And you start with this prompt. And then it morphs. And over 20 years later, yeah, you have a yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I'm so grateful to all it's all the teachers, you know, like I took a playwriting class, because I didn't, when I originally wrote it, playwriting was not anything I did or thought about. I worked with a director who was like, I'm gonna do a playwriting class. And I was like, great. And then I wrote a scene called Mama and Me. And, you know, it just kept developing when I had opportunities, I would pull it out because it was something that interested me. And then all of a sudden it was a one act and then it became a semifinalist in a national playwriting competition. And I was like, oh, somebody likes this. Okay, I can maybe it can work. People are getting what I'm trying to do. And so then I became a playwright and resident up in upstate New York. And that was the biggest first step in really creating a real play, a full length play, because I, I got to work with actors and they would read it. And then I would go back to my room and rewrite madly and then come back and they would read it again and I'd go away and and then at the end we did a reading on stage for an audience so that was huge in the development of it wow that's great yeah because this play I mean it's been really fascinating to see it evolve and as somebody who doesn't I've been a consumer of theater my whole life but to see the other side of not even the stage, you know, where, where plays are born. It's just been fascinating to see the collaboration that happens, like you said, between teachers, between directors and actors and everything like that. Could you talk a little bit about how it got published and what does it mean for a play to be published? I think that's confusing for people. It's an interesting thing. And as a, a new emerging playwright, which, which we can all t- also talk about, which is very challenging, especially when you are middle-aged. But to answer your question... I'm a member of several playwright groups, and one of them is Honor Roll, which is for women over 40, playwrights over 40, which is an amazing group. And a playwright by the name of Susan Cinnamon, who is a local playwright here, who has done quite a lot. I met her at my playwright in residency. She was on a podcast with Gene Cato, who is the founder of Next Stage Press, and told him about Honor Roll. And then he was intrigued. You know, he he likes to give opportunity to voices who are not necessarily don't have the ability to publish. So he opened up a submission timeframe for honor roll playwrights. And I saw it and I submitted. And I assumed I didn't get it because I kept seeing everybody else's plays, you know, being put up and I was like, oh, and then I got a lovely message from him just saying how moved he was by the play and that he was a little shaken after reading it. And that was like, to hear that from anybody who is not your wife <laughs> or your friend is, you know, kind of special. So that's how that happened. So publishing a play, to try to answer your question, the difference is you, you get produced, which is putting your work on stage, where a theater produces it, which is really what I really want to happen now, and published. Many playwrights would not have published it because it hasn't had formal productions. So some playwrights, like I reached out to big playwrights. I reached out to Lauren Gunderson, who, if anybody's ever watched MASH and the way that Alan All does character, always wrote to Sigmund, uh, no, no, it was Sidney. It was, a, it was the psychiatrist on MASH. He always wrote to Sigmund Freud, like just wrote him letters. That's what I do with Lauren Gunderson. I write her things. And, but I actually reached out to her and she answered me back and said that she had never published without having production. But then I reached out 
to the Dramatist Guild and I reached out to other people and I just thought, one of my advisors, I'm I'm going through the Dramatist Guild uh, Institute certificate program, and he said, "What else, you know? Otherwise, it's just going to sit in your drawer, right? Like, it's a way to get it out there." So, I, and and Gene works hard with um, the publisher, Gene. Gene, yeah, works hard with universities and colleges and stuff. So I'm hoping that that may also be a venue, you know, a way to get it out. So I, I took the leap. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, everything is so different because of the pandemic. I mean, talk about an industry that has been completely, completely sidelined by yeah, the pandemic. Theaters have been closed in this country. So I think everything is is so different. And... Well, it, and it's much like the restaurant industry or something like that. I mean, it, I don't think people understand the level of, like, I was a performer for 40 years and your whole, everything you do, you, you know, when you're not in a show, you do not have money, you do not earn insurance. Like it's all connected. So it's been really tough on the industry. And a, a lot of the little theaters probably will not come back, which is tragic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, I want to understand. So when once the play is published, if a high school wants to perform this play, they would purchase copies of the play or a copy. I'm not sure how it works. No, they would actually, they would go through the publisher but they would actually purchase the rights the right so then they would send them a packet that had you know it's a four-person play so it would have four scripts it would probably have a director's copy and they would purchase them for however many performances they wanted to do so one of my so you can just buy the script which you right. did you know like people can just buy it and read yeah. it but if you're going to otherwise you're licensing it so so once someone license it this is one of my questions so you were saying you know you were you had been given advice that maybe you shouldn't publish it until you'd seen it performed a little bit and I would imagine that's because it's like the whole off off Broadway thing you know you watch it being performed then you tweak it and then it moves to off Broadway and then it moves to Broadway and you know that Absolutely. sort of thing and it has different incarnations but one of the things I've never understood is that people also publish or get the licensing and then they perform it in alternative ways right so yes. so what is what are the rights that you have as a playwright to say please don't, you know, make a Picasso version of my play on stage, you know, no offense that's to a really Picasso. Good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I know the full and complete answer. I mean, theoretically, they cannot, I mean, through the Dramatist Guild, the Dramatist Guild is there to protect us. They can't change your language. But as far as laying some obscure concept on top of what you wrote, I don't know how much control you have like one of my favorite playwrights, Robert Harley, who wrote Steel Magnolias. I mean, he is somebody who does not go see Steel Magnolias <laughs> everywhere it is because because right. you know right. he's afraid. But and I didn't do this in Magpie. I thought about it because he in the beginning of Steel Magnolias, he actually wrote something about I can't. And I, this is not perfect, but about how they, these women are not caricatures, which just really spoke to me as somebody who is from the South and to see the way that Southerners are often portrayed on stage. You know, it was just so important to him that people understood that these are real women who are intelligent and complex, and they are not to be played basically one-dimensional, which I thought, you know, that's all you can do as a playwright is kind of go, please, please, right. please respect my characters, <laughs> right. you know, but other than that, you don't really have too much, unless they're changing your words, and then you have some, ram you know, legal, legal, yeah. Course, yeah. You know, speaking of Steel Magnolias, it's probably one of the few plays I've read outside of the classroom um, when I was in school, it was really always a challenge to read plays. Um, I remember like Death of the Salesman in high school, that was painful. A lot of Shakespeare in college. 
but Steel Magnolias, oh my gosh, reading it after having seen the movie, it was so different. And it's such an awesome play with so many great lines. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a tip, if you have any, on how do you read a play when you're just in your, you know, sitting on your couch by yourself? Yeah, I mean... It's interesting because I am not the best play reader. I think plays are very hard to read. Some people like to. I think people who enjoy reading poetry may actually be be better play readers. Hmm. Don't know if that's true or just something I think. But just like your experience with watching the movie, I think there is something to that when there are movies of work. It's like Jane Austen. When I watched her movies and then read her books, it was somehow I'm a visual person. So that helped me in the language. But in most plays, I think it's just taking your time and knowing that you may have to read it more than once to get, it's usually the rhythm of the playwright that, that we struggle with because it's written in, in their voice, you know, in the character's voice, but in a certain way in their rhythms. And so we're trying to read it like a book mm. and it's not written like a book. People are, it's all dialogue. So it's a different feel, you know, you're not, you're not getting the exposition that you get in a book. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of trying to let yourself feel like you're eavesdropping on conversations interesting that's great thank you see I loved reading it and I'm I'm someone I mean I just didn't finish a very famous writer's book which is in the early part of this episode because there were pages of dialogue that I felt was really tedious but I didn't feel like reading this was tedious at all I mean in a certain way it's so nice because you get rid of all of the dialogue tags you know the he said she said and all of that it's just yeah the conversation and I thought it was really easy to read. Now, I'm, I am a poetry reader, so that's interesting that you should say that. But, but there's also this interesting thing when you're reading that, that in parenthesis, you'll have beat. So that's like, take a breath, right? It's kind of, yeah. which as a reader kind of forced me to go like, okay, hold it for a second. <laughs> now keep reading. And I thought that was brilliant. It was like, people should do this See, in novels. you'll be a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's for the actor, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's in there for them, which and a beat is longer than a pause. It, it's to really mean that there's an internal shift going on in the character or something that's happening. So it's fascinating because this is one thing I've been talking about within a class I was taking where they were talking about playwrights creating their own punctuation to help the actors. And not all actors are on board with that. I had an actor in one of my early readings who was like, you you use all these ellipses and you use all this and it it should you know there should be sentences and it's like no one talks in sentences none of us ever finish what we're saying we cut ourselves <laughs> off we cut each other off yeah and that's you know that's the challenge when you're writing dialogue is how do you especially in magpie i mean magpie was not was a you know a more naturalistic real you know it wasn't a a world where people were speaking in a a high a highly uh affected or different way it was should be very natural it's naturalistic Mm -hmm. so i think this would be the perfect time for you to just give your elevator pitch about what magpie's about because we haven't told the listeners yet (laughs) (laughs) yeah i this is where i struggle and i'm supposed to get better at this so thanks for the opportunity um but i do think i really do think it's a story of of identity of somebody trying to figure out who they are claiming their own voice and most importantly claiming their own narrative you know, I think many of us in all family uh, dramas, people tell you what your story is. And it's so important for you to figure out what your story is. It's also the story of two women, you know, one who's a survivor and one who wants to be a thriver, basically. They have two different approaches to life and learning how to respect that in each other. So, yeah. I don't know if no, that's, that's great. It's also, I mean, what I think is really interesting. So there is a mother character and a daughter character. 
mother's a little tricky. That's my new favorite way to describe people. (laughs) And um, she used the mom uses a lot of silence. And silence is really powerful. Absolutely. It's such a it's an underestimated weapon, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and hard to portray, I would think, in a play, but I think yes. you do it really well. Thank you. Yeah, it is very tricky. And I think that was one of the hardest parts to write was how to help the actor who's playing the daughter, you know, because the mother, and even the mother, writing it for the mother, so the mother's just not being quiet. Like there's a difference between not talking and using silence as a weapon like having an energy behind it or intentionally putting up a wall to not see somebody, even though they're sitting next to you. So trying to write those in so that the actors get what's going on was challenging, which is going back to production. That was one thing I asked the um, publisher was once I get to do a production of it, can I please, you know, (laughs) edit the script? Because I'm sure seeing all of that will affect little things here and there. And it's a psychological play, as you can probably tell just from what we've been talking about with it. And and I think that's a, a different kind of play. I mean, there's tension in all plays and everything, but to have one be so based on the relational psychology between a mother and a daughter. And um, there's also a therapist in the story. And could you talk a little bit about how you use the therapist in the story? You know, in terms of, I don't know if this is too spoilery, but the light. Yeah, it was, I I find Maggie's journey quite fascinating. And I really wanted, I wanted a therapist portrayed, which is hard on stage, right? A, a lot of the feedback I always got about therapists was like, who is he? What, is, you know, and I'm like, we're not going to know what he has at Starbucks. Like, he's a therapist. <laughs> like, we don't get to know his outside life. But there's a moment where she is really struggling and She's created the safe space within therapy. And as somebody who's had a lot of therapy, I am an advocate for those safe spaces. And they're usually challenging to create outside of, you know, you learn it in therapy. That's where your first safe space. And then it's hard to build it outside. So he turns on a light and says, think of this as your flashlight. Think of this as, you know, you're building this internal light. And the more that you do what's right for you, the stronger this light is going to be. So as a visual person, that's something that starts, it turns on in the very beginning of the play. And I've never seen it yet, but in my mind, (laughs) that light is always on. Even when they're, you know, the stage lights are dimming, that light stays on. So it is on until, until it's not. And I won't, Mm -hmm. I will say no more. (laughs) That's awesome. I just love that because, you know, maybe I'm just geeking out as a, a theater audience person, but I watch plays and musicals very differently since, well, since you started working on plays to, to understand so much more of the intention about why this is happening and why that is there and how scenes shift and everything. So I just think that's such a really cool and important detail. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to, to see it. Magpie for me is totally a visual play, which has been one of the most challenges in writing it because I always wanted it to flow like our thoughts flow in and out of our mind the way that we go to the past, the future, where we are. Like I wanted her to walk physically in the spaces in and out of time and and space. So 
Does it work? I don't know. We'll say yes right now. <laughs> it definitely worked in my mind as I was reading it. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely felt that way. And and I I think, you know, we're being careful not to spoil the story. But I, I will say, you know, getting back to the difference between the mother and the daughter and family secrets and, and the, the role of a mother and a daughter that I thought you were really generous, even though mom is tricky, you were very generous with the mother character. And really that, you know, that I think deep down the mother thought by through silence, she was protecting her daughter by not telling her things that she thought would be upsetting. It's been really interesting through all of it and all of the iterations to see the response, right, that people have. Because people either identify immediately with Maggie or with Mama. Mm -hmm. Like, there, there's not many people in between. And I've had, I actually had someone chase me out into a parking lot to tell me that we needed to know what Mama's deal was. Like, why is she the way she is? And I, all I could think in my head was like, yes. Like, she is feeling exactly what Maggie's feeling. And that's what I want the audience to feel. I want that frustration. I want that you know, but but through writing this, I feel like I got such an understanding for Mama in a way of um, and compassion. And I hope Maggie comes to that. You know that that we are all differently. I personally have a very strong views <laughs> about you know personal growth and how blah blah blah. But you know, not everybody does. And Mama has her reasons, whether we learn them or not. You know, or whether we understand them or not. And that's how it is in life. Like people do what they do because they do. <laughs> and sometimes we get to be a part of understanding and sometimes we don't. Yeah, it really made me think, you know, as a mom too, I, I was laughing because I, I read some of it at like five in the morning because I'm an early morning reader and I was laughing oh in bed at five in the morning. But I was thinking about, you know, there's this certain generation, I would say now they're probably in their 80s and 90s who think therapy is like not, they're not having it, you know. But yeah. now we have kids who are coming up whose parents were all about therapy you know, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that, like, I there's a part of me that wonders if there's going to be this, you know, this wonderful, well, I'm showing my bias towards therapy, this wonderfully, <laughs> you know, intellectual and connected and, you know, thoughtful generations for a few decades. And then there's going to be these kids that rebel and are like, I'm tired of you talking to Absolutely. me about my feelings, mom, you know. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, usually, right? Everything people tend to backlash. I think it's all in how it's done. I mean, I'm certainly not a parent, so I don't know. But it's. I think it's intention. It's like with friends and everything else. I think it makes me think of Ellen DeGeneres and the first time I ever heard her say vulnerability is strength. And it was like, wow, that is a whole nother concept, you know, and one that I personally was not raised with. And I think that's the difference. You know, I mean, People have very strong th feelings about therapy. And of course, there are many different types of therapists and all different types of experiences. But when you really go to that, our humanity is what connects us. And that's vulnerability. So that is that is a strong point for us all to connect on. But it's really scary. Yeah, it is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the title, Magpie? Magpie? Yes. So Magpie, it's... So it's really interesting because when I write plays, I create visuals for myself. I always create like a little clip arty visual. And originally I had this one and it kind of gave away the whole play. And I didn't even think about it that it did. And one of the directors I worked with was like, hmm, that's really interesting that that's the image you have. And he started talking about the magpie and how much he liked 
when the therapist talks about the magpie, should I say it? Is it? Yeah. Do I give it? Is that fine? Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. So magpies are the only bird that can see their own reflection. And so I was like, oh, right. Like, so I had always called it magpie, but I had never really made the connection as to why I called it magpie. <laughs> um, I mean, her mother, Maggie's mother calls her magpie, but it was really more about the bird seeing, you know, being able to see their own reflection, which is part of her journey in the story is to learn to mirror herself, to see herself. Can you talk about that concept of mirroring? Because I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah. Um, this was was in the play at one point, but got cut at some point because because many things get cut. Um, there is a, a experiment that was done in the, I want to say in the 70s, I could be wrong, so don't quote me, um, called the still face experiment that was done about with babies, with little people and the effect that not mirroring has on them. So they would have this happy little baby and the caregiver, whoever's there would be, the baby would be like, ah, you know, making faces and moving their hands and the caregiver would be making faces back and moving their hands, mirroring, right? So validating that they, they, they actually exist because when you're that little, you don't know you exist. And then the caregiver would turn away and come back with a still face, would not react to the child at all. Did move didn't make face and the kids basically freak out like you know they they try this they try that they they keep doing things and then all of a sudden they just totally withdraw because they're not being mirrored which means they don't know that they exist so that's where mirroring starts is when we are really young so if we don't have someone who mirrors us and mirrors back not only you know when you're little little it's like that but then as you grow it's your own opinions, your own thoughts, your own, you know, those kind of things. If you don't have somebody mirroring you, it becomes a real challenge. Right. So that's a little clue into some of the subject matter of the play. Yes. Yeah. That is so intense. And I wonder the ethics of that type of experiment today. Well, from what I know, I've never watched it. You can watch it. It's out there to see. I don't, it wasn't like for long period, you know, (laughs) long periods of time. So I don't, I don't know if they, could do it today but it's still around if somebody's interested in looking it up well thanks for sharing that yeah well can you tell the listeners how they can find a copy of the play i think chris can yeah (laughs) well you know what it's next stage press and we'll put the link in the show notes but for those of you who are uh, more listeners the website is nextstagepress.net so just type that in nextstagepress.net slash magpie m-a-g-p-i-e and you'll it'll go straight to the page where magpie is i think they're like 30 pages that you can download yes just to you can download that sample just to check it out laura are we allowed to ask you what you're working on now you're certainly allowed to ask me what i'm working on now i'm working on several things i'm trying to learn how to write a 10 minute play which is not my favorite form so i'm working on one that i I came up with a title last night and no, I forgot it. Heart Heartbreak Tonight. What's the Eagles song? There's going to be a heart, heartache, to, heartache, heartache tonight. tonight. Yeah. There we go. So anyway, I'm working on that and trying to master that form. And I'm working on my full length play, Yours and Words, which you all talked about in the intro. I have actually adapted it to a novel to adapt it back to a play. Like that's the madness that is me. Wow. So I, I adapted it into a novel because I wanted to understand and explore the characters that I talk about in the play that were not in the play and try to figure it out because the play was too small (laughs) to figure out what I was trying to do. 
So I'm kind of in the middle of madness. And it's a novel in a really bad form, <laughs> bad draft. And now I'm starting to think about bringing it back into a play and what that means. Wow, that's so. fascinating. I talked to an author once who was a short story writer, and she talked about that, how she would write out entire characters in the story. But then as she was working on the story, she realized that like that character walking down the road, like it was important to the story that they knew the character was walking down the road, but they didn't need to know anything else about the character. But she had to write the whole character to discover that. So that sounds kind of like what you're doing, you know, is understanding your characters because you gave them all their backstory or whatever and some more scenes in the novel, but then you can bring it back into the play and make the play more robust, right? But without all of that. Absolutely. And I'm a little crazy because I... I, I'm in love with that play and it, it needs the work. Like with Magpie, I, I worked really, really hard to get it into finally real play form. And, and Yours and Words needs so much work because it's a very big play. And I, at one point, I think it would make a great television series. So I started working on several things and I finally was like, just go to the novel because the novel will be the space, like you just said. And that's what you need to understand your own character. So I, I did NaNoWriMo in November. So I did tons of outlining, which was amazing. I did character sketches. I did a, a huge full outline. I did a short outline. Like, so I just really got to know it in a way that I didn't know it in the play. And now I, it's kind of crazy to try to bring it back into a play because it's, it was, I think, a four or five character play. And now it's not, it's much, it's bigger than that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. There's so much to learn there. That's so cool. I mean, I love Magpie, but Yours and Words is set in 1895, New York. It's about two women writers from different generations. So like, that is just so my sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs> someday it will be a play. Well, again. you will be someday. back here someday talking about it. And we cannot <laughs> wait. Thank you so much so. for coming and sharing this conversation with us. Listeners, we would love for you to go out and buy a copy of the play. Leave a review with the press if you do. That's really helpful. That would be amazing. It's also really fun when you buy your copy from Next Stage Press. They send you a very personal email thanking you for your purchase. You're not buying it from the devil. A faceless entity. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. I always enjoy being with book cougars. <laughs> gonna say we can't really say what we say to other writers you know it's good to see you yeah good to see you again because we yeah. see you every day and that's glorious <laughs> in its own way but thank you so much for making the time to come talk with us today thank you i appreciate it and we wish you lots of success with the play we we look forward thank to you. when it gets to be put on in person and we get to sit in seats and watch it well i'll just say mark your calendars for october of 2022 because it will be done in old saybrook at drama works Congratulations. Yay. You heard it here first. <laughs> Breaking news. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.